and I shared some of it with my wife before uh, we came here tonight, and I, I'm just so impressed with, uh, again, with the Word of God and how wonderful it is and how powerful it is and how necessary it is and how helpful uh, we need to make, we need to stay faithful to the Bible, amen? We just need to stay faithful to the Word of God and faithful to what God has called us uh, to do and to be. And uh, in light of that, I want to ask you to pray, if you will, write down just two names tonight, and uh, they could really use our prayers. Number one is Miss Franny Winters is recovering from a procedure that she had just a couple of days ago. And uh, this is the last procedure, I think, that she's supposed to have before uh, they uh, retire and go back to Tennessee. And she's home, and she's not comfortable, hasn't slept in a couple of days, uh, but needs our prayer for healing, if you will pray. And uh, and if you want any more details uh, with the procedure, you can talk to her about it. Uh, but just pray. She's in a lot of pain, and, uh, and, and it's not doing well in that aspect. And so I told her that we would be praying for her, prayed with her today on the phone. Then also... Uh, Bob Williams, if you'll write his name down, he's been struggling with back pain for months and months and months and uh, has not gotten any relief whatsoever. And today it's just flared up super duper bad. So pray for his back, pray for healing, pray that the doctors would have wisdom. There's really not too much more that's more frustrating than going to a doctor and not getting any help or getting any answers. And many of you know uh, what that road looks like. And so just pray uh, for that family as well. I know they would appreciate it. And pray for our church. We've had many visitors in the last couple of weeks, and I don't think that's by accident. And uh, I met with uh, one of the visitors' family members today and just uh, just was so encouraged and helped. And so I'm just thankful to see that the Lord's not done with us yet here in Morgan Hill. And I'm thankful that we get to be reminded every single day that we are still to be the light and the salt in this area and that there are people that need Jesus Christ. And I'm just convinced if we opened our eyes more and lifted them up, that they would be more acute to the harvest that's around us. And so I just want to ask you to pray for our church and pray that God would continue to raise up leaders amongst us. And leaders are just servants. There are people that just see a need and decide that they're going to meet that need in every way possible. And so pray for our church. Pray that God would continue to use us and, uh, and so tonight I'd like to just open up by a word of prayer and pray for Bob and Franny and uh, ask the Lord to continue to minister to them and then minister to us tonight by the word of God as we hear uh, one of these last two Bible studies as we get ready to close the study down. How many have been helped by this Bible study at all? And uh, how many have been encouraged? I know I've been challenged, but I've also been encouraged. Uh, what you're going to hear tonight, I'm just telling you, is just top notch. It's just top level Bible study. And, 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 I, I, I've kind of said this in passing in the last 17 years, but there's a big difference between studying the Bible as it is given and talking about it and saying, well, Mike, this is how you interpret it, and Scott, this is how you interpret it, and this is what I take away from it. Uh, or there's a big difference between Bible study and reading a book and talking about the book. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Christian books and Christian authors. I'm certainly not. But if I'm going to study the Word of God, I want to study it. I want, to, I want someone that has studied it to give it to me so that I can put it into practical measures in my life. And I, I, I'm just so thankful for the gift of God in Jim Berg's life and how he has ministered to me over the last couple of years. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to tonight's study. So let's have a word of prayer and uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together and these requests as well. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne tonight. And we want to say thank you for always being there and for always hearing us. We want to say thank you for your faithfulness and your commitment to us. It was that love and that commitment, Lord, uh, through your sacrifice on Calvary that has allowed us to come before your throne of grace tonight. And for that, we're very grateful. 
We're so thankful for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and for your resurrection tonight. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of us, and we're certainly grateful, Lord, for the Word of God that you put before us. And we pray tonight that you would bless that Word in our heart. Uh, Lord, I, I am so grateful for how you use your Word and how you honor it. And Lord, the, I think one of the best ways we can honor you is by putting ourselves into Scripture and putting our hearts and minds set on your Word, that we may keep your precepts to the end. And I pray tonight that you'd open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your Word, and then you would give us wisdom to rightly apply it. I pray for all these that are here. Thank you so much for their attendance tonight. Thank you for those that have been coming on Sunday. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to grow us, continue to bring us back together even on Wednesday nights and help our hearts to be uh, pricked about being absent from the fellowship of the believers, that we would understand that we need to be together. And Lord, if that's one thing that's that's been an encouragement to me in this last weekend was just the fact that we've been together and we were together on Saturday and then together again on Sunday. And here we are again this Wednesday. And I'm thankful for that fellowship. I know that we need it. Lord, tonight there's a couple of people who are normally here that are not able to be here tonight. One is Brother Bob. And uh, Lord, we just lift him up tonight in prayer. We ask that you'd minister to his body physically, to his spirit, of course. We ask that you would heal him. We ask, Lord, that uh, for Jesus' sake and for your loving kindness' sake, that you would strengthen him and comfort him tonight, that he would find solace in your name. We pray, God, that you give the doctors wisdom. We pray also, Lord, for Miss Franny tonight, and we lift her up to your throne. We ask that you would help our sister tonight, that you would encourage her. We pray for healing in the name of Jesus. And we ask that you would uh, give the doctors wisdom for her sake, and, Lord, that you would comfort her tonight and help her to rest in the arms of her Savior. Uh, Lord, our bodies need rest. You designed us for that. And when we're hurting, it's difficult. And when we're hurting because of a medical procedure or because of something wrong in our bodies, it's, it, it makes it so difficult. And I just pray that you would help them tonight the way that only you can. And I pray, God, tonight that you would bless these that are here. No doubt there are burdens. No doubt there are cares. Uh, Lord, no doubt there, there, there are needs in this very room. And, Lord, we confess tonight to you the truth. And that is that you're the only one that can meet those needs. Lord, we try our best to meet our own needs. We try our best to find our own way. But, Lord, the steps of a man are directed by God. And, Lord, we know that this life can only be lived to its fullest by your grace and by your strength. So we appeal to you tonight and we ask for your help. Would you please help us? Lord, will you please continue to help our church? We continue to to continue to bring us back together, continue to grow us, help us to see more people come, not just for attendance sake, but Lord, for the gospel's sake, help more people to be saved and more homes to be helped and more marriages to be, uh, to be strengthened and, and, and more children to be raised up for your glory and honor. I just pray that you keep our, uh, keep our minds on the harvest field and help us to be mindful of where we are and not get uh, duped into believing that people don't want to hear somebody else tell them about Christ and Lord, I believe now more than ever there is a great need for the gospel and people are more susceptible to that need. And I just pray that you'd help us to understand that tonight. I pray that we would learn this core value of courage tonight. Uh, Lord, as we learn it from a man named Joshua and how he, uh, Lord, was full of courage when he went into the promised land and he died in the promised land courageously. I pray, Father, that you'll bless the word of God in our hearts richly. Ask that you'd help us now to hear from your word. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen. All right, let's start our Bible study tonight.
Well, we're coming into session 12 here, where we'll talk about the core value of courage for Christ. Several months ago, I had the opportunity of attending the National Character and Leadership Symposium hosted by the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. One of the tasks of the Air Force Academy's Center for Character Development is to host this annual event. It is two and a half days of conferences filled with workshops and keynote addresses by government officials, uh, military personnel, of course, and many men and women from the private sector. I was greatly encouraged by the level of commitment that I saw on behalf of our men and women in uniform. I also learned much about how they approach the issues of leadership and courage and character. In in fact, these words, along with commitment, were on the, the, the tongue of almost every workshop and keynote speaker. And I was impressed with the cadets that I had a chance to visit with, impressed by their commitment to become as strong of character individuals that they could possibly be. In Plato's Republic, which I certainly don't endorse his philosophy in it, but Plato speaks of men sitting in a cave and they're strapped to their seats and they cannot move left or right and the only thing they can do is look at the back wall of the cave. And behind them is a very large campfire. And between their backs and the campfire, there are people who are going about various activities. And the only thing these people strapped on this, uh, into their seats can see is what's projected in the shadows up on the wall in front of them. And of course, Plato was using that allegory of the cave to describe his idea that what we really see isn't the most important thing, what the, the particulars, but what really is important are the universals. He called them the forms which lie behind all of the things that are going on in the earth. Now, of course, we don't subscribe to his view on those things either. But I tell you that to say this. When I was at the Air Force Academy, I felt like I had a front row seat in a cave. And I was watching men and women in uniform speak about character and about leadership and about commitment and about courage and about compassion. And all they could produce are the shadows of the real thing because they did not know Christ. But I will tell you, I felt like they see the shadows more clearly than most believers see the real thing. Jesus captured it very well when he said, the children of this generation are wiser than the children of light. My heart is very burdened at times as dean of students at Bob Jones University when I encounter parents and their children. Fortunately, this is in a minority. But parents and their children who want the product of a Christian education, but they reject the process of it. They don't like the accountability. They don't like 
feet held to the fire for, and they don't like th- their children made responsible for what they do. The children reject the calls to self-control and they bail out of hardship because they have no endurance. And that permissiveness of our, of our culture has infected the church with, with the inevitable result of producing cowardly believers who are ruled by the fear of men and by their own lusts. Many families, and I would say the great majority of the families who send their children to Bob Jones University, understand that that child must learn discipline if God is going to use him. And they echo with Paul, what Paul said, that he must discipline his body and make it his slave so he can become useful to Christ. The men and women at the Air Force Academy understood courage. They understood how it is formed on a foundation of commitment and how courage is forged on the anvil of adversity and pressure and testing. But though most of them, most of the speakers, were not aware of any scriptural patterns in the development of character, they knew the value of the virtues of self-control and endurance and how strategic they were in the formation of courage. What, of course, they did not know is the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if God was going to be honored by their actions and by their lives. One of the workshop speakers was a particularly riveting speaker. His name was Gus Lee, a very interesting Asian-American I want to read you a portion from the biographical sketch that was in the conference guide. It states this. He is a nationally recognized ethicist. That is his, his uh, forte. He is a leadership expert, a business author, and novelist. He, he was raised by YMCA boxers. He has been a corporate VP, senior executive, lead trainer for California's prosecutors, senior deputy district attorney, ethics whistleblower, paratrooper, and drill sergeant. Quite an array of experiences this man has had, and it, it showed in his, in his speaking. I purchased a book of his that he sold at the conference, and it's called Courage, the Backbone of Leadership. And it reminds us of some of the important principles we've studied in part two of this study of the essential virtues. He says this, Courage is the mental and moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. It comes from the Latin and Middle English word for heart. When we would say, that man has a lot of heart. We're not talking about tenderheartedness. We're talking about courage. He said, courage is the tip of the spear of integrity and the spark plug for principled conduct. It is integrity at its highest. This is because it faces fear, converts integrity into a habit, and gives enduring power and usefulness to leadership. It is human behavior at its most admirable, selfless, and excellent. It is the stuff of epics, legends, and heroism. It is what we wish our children will possess and demonstrate. It is what we admire most in leaders, friends, and spouses. Courage begins by facing strong, negative, gut-wrenching feelings. It requires the direct and robust facing of fear. Facing fear, then, becomes the correcting of internal wrongs 
and confronting, addressing, and correcting external wrongs in others. The opposite of courage is indifference. Courage comes from commitment, care, and love. Whereas allowing wrongs in others leads to others' mistreatment and suffering. That is why being courageous for rightness is superior to being a good person who keeps his nose clean. Courage is addressing wrongs in the face of fear, regardless of circumstances, of risks to self, or of potential practical gains. Courageous leadership is about utilizing our brains, character, and spirit to advocate principles regardless of the odds, heedless of fear, apart from collateral impact, and independent of personal career needs. He says the good person is just that, somebody who keeps his or her nose clean. But the person of character is a completely different cat. This person does the right thing, not only for himself or herself, but for others, for the principle of the thing. In those brief comments, he captures many of the nuances of those second column virtues of self-control and endurance. And those three th- and those three virtues together of self-control and endurance and godliness, which he does not, of course, talk about, together produce the definition that I've given you or the summary that I've given you on your chart. And that is a brave-hearted disciple who advances Christ and his ways and opposes evil in himself and others regardless of the risk to himself. As I said in an earlier session... Courage for Christ is nothing more than grown-up commitment for Christ. If you really are committed to somebody, you are courageous in protecting them and in advancing what is important to them. Well, the world does a great job of destroying those essential virtues. And I want to take a moment again to look at our chart. And we're going to walk through different components of it. And I want to show you Again, how the world, how worldliness makes cowards of us all. Worldliness creates a culture of cowardice. Nobody speaks up. The right thing, according to the world, is for everybody to be tolerant and accept everything as if there were no right and wrong. Virtually making cowards of everybody. And political correctness is a tool that is used to hammer that cowardice, hammer everybody into compliance, making a coward out of everybody. And worldliness lures the believer away from Christ-centeredness, which is the very foundation of commitment and courage. And worldliness has its own appeals and its own ideals, which, as we've said before, are the polar opposites of what it means to follow Christ. Worldliness, as we've said, produces disillusioned and discouraged and eventually disintegrating believers. It fills the mind with other things other than Christ. You know, it is very much, the, the lure of worldliness is very much like a man who is working at a job where he is allowing the seduction of a woman at that job to affect his life. And if he tolerates her advances 
and tolerates her appeals, what is going to happen to his commitment to his wife? It's going to disintegrate. They are mutually exclusive. And folks, if we tolerate the lures of the world, the lusts to our, of our flesh, the, the uh, lusts of the eyes for the possessions of the world and the, and the things the world says are important, and the pride of life, the ambition of the world, and the arrogance of the world, and the self-centeredness of the world, it will lure us away from Christ. Worldliness affects the believer the same way that seductive woman will affect that marriage. And we must reject the appeals and the ideals of the world. But not only does worldliness destroy that first column of commitment by luring the believer away from Christ-centeredness, worldliness destroys courage for Christ by scorning self-control. Remember back up on our chart? The first Virtue in the second column, the backbone of Christian character. The first virtue is self-control. The world scorns self-control. And if you spend much time listening to the world and buying into the world, you will not think much of self-control either. The world cries, do as you please. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You're an adult. Be yourself. Resist authority. Question authority. Be your own person. Be anything you want to be. And the world undermines self-control primarily through its appeals of sensuality. Folks, indulgence in sexual activity of any kind outside of marriage, and Jesus said, even in your mind, stops self-control dead in its tracks and robs a man and woman of courage because they have no self-control. In fact, Proverbs puts it this way, that the wicked fleeth when no man pursueth. The wicked is on the run. He is a coward. He has the fear of man. But the righteous are bold as a lion. They have self-control. They've, they've got their thoughts under control. Their priorities are under control. And they can be bold. Men and women who fill their minds with sensual entertainment and pursue its seductive fashions of the world today will remain cowards. A woman who dresses in a sexy fashion to attract men is destroying the character of the men around her by tempting them to lose control in their minds. And some girls think, well, i got to dress sexy to attract a man. The man you will get will, will be a great disappointment to you. Because he has no self-control or he wouldn't go with you in the first place. He doesn't have self-control or godliness. And a woman who's dressing like that in, in shrink-wrapped manner to be sexy to attract a man and to feel good about herself in this culture is sabotaging her marriage. Because the man she will attract will have no character. Because he has to abort his commitment to Jesus Christ and to purity of his mind to even be around her. And in the same token, a man who's indulging in fantasies like that or in pornography 
or in sensual entertainment, whether it comes out of movies or the video games he plays or the music that he listens to or the sensual, con- the sensual conversation that he has with other guys or other women, will, he will not become a man of integrity if he lives that way. He is not whole because he lacks self-control upon which courage and godly manhood rest. I mentioned this several times. You hear me talking a lot about worldliness in these sessions. It is the big problem of our day in the church. It didn't used to be a big problem in the church. It is in the church now. And it's the same problem that Peter is addressing in 2 Peter 1. And it is the same line of false teaching that has brought it into the church, that of libertine Christianity, of a wrong view of Christian liberty. For example... The popular idea that the Bible condemns only drunkenness. And therefore, you know, we can drink as long as we don't get drunk. Ignores the major effect of today's undiluted and distilled alcohol. And that is that it it, it destroys, sabotages self-control. The issue is not whether a believer can control his alcohol. The issue is that the alcohol does control him. Taken in whatever degree you take it. The proponents of social drinking among Christians have argued for the particulars of whether or not the Bible expressly forbids the use of alcohol. And they have ignored the scriptural's universal appeal to always have restraint. What is alcohol? It is a disinhibitor. The exact opposite of self-control. That is why even one and two beers affects reaction time in driving. Why? It hurts people's self-control. That's the universal issue that's at stake. Whether the Bible completely forbids it or not. Christian liberty as Paul taught it does not give believers freedom to do anything they want as long as it's not forbidden in Scripture. That's the popular idea today. It gives them the freedom to reject anything that does not advance Christ and His ways even if it is not forbidden in Scripture. That's Christian liberty. I can let that stuff go. I don't even need that. It will not even help me in my pursuit of Christ-likeness. It will sabotage my self-control. And the same call to abstinence, the self-control, applies to any verbal or physical activity between the sexes that tempts them sensually. The old taboos of no physical contact between the sexes and chaperoned activities of young people in mixed company were not exercises in legalism, nor are they outdated social constructs. Those are the wise application of biblical principles by courageous people who know there can be no compromise on God's command that we exercise self-control. The popular logic, born in the permissiveness of the 60s, states, well, if we don't give people the opportunity to make these decisions for themselves, they won't develop the ability to make choices. Never before in the history of civilization do we have more people making more choices for themselves and, we're, and we have never been in such a bad fix as we are. 
Listen, every time a person faces a limitation, physical limitation, financial limitation, a limitation imposed upon him by a policy at work or by our government, he has a choice. He's not robbed of choices. He always has choice. Is he going to obey it or not? Is he going to do what God called him to do? And do it in the manner which God called him to do it in, wholeheartedly and whatever? Or is he going to go by the lust of his own flesh and do what he wants to do? It is not the absence of limitation and demands that builds character. It is the exercise of self-restraint in the presence of limitations and demands that builds character. You know, if you go to the fitness center to work on core muscle groups, but don't ever move any weight, you won't develop anything. Your body is developed by working itself against resistance, limitations. That's how our character is developed too. And God places in our lives, in His providence, all kinds of workstations upon which we can practice. The rules of our parents, the rules of our school, of our government, the physical things He's put us in. You know, one of the greatest problems today in even producing endurance is that there is unlimited credit in financial areas. There was a time, and I'm not talking about good old days now, but because I, I don't know if they were so good in a lot of ways, but when Patty and I first got married, I'm not sure credit cards had been invented. I, they, maybe they had been, but we didn't have one. And I don't think overdraft protection had been invented. You had to live in your mean, within your means. And if you didn't have the money, you didn't buy it. And you know what it did? Those, you know what those limitations did? It created some self-control. It created some endurance while you learned to wait. You had to decide what was really important and what is not. We have a lights-out time at the university. So you say, well, you know, we just, we just need no more time. No, you don't need an overdraft of time. Learn to do what you need to do in the time that God has allotted for you. That will do more for your character than anything else. That's not a bad policy. As long as I'm around, we're going to have one. Because we care about the character issue and we care about the rest of young people. They need sleep. Say, well, the adult thing is just let us... That is not the adult thing, to just do what I want. The adult thing is, is that you restrain yourself. I mean, the adult thing that's really supposed to be adult. Adult now means you can do anything you want in our culture. That is not God's view of maturity and adulthood. Adulthood means that you impose restraint on yourself and therefore nobody else needs to. This is the kind of thing the world is destroying courage by, by destroying self-control. Today, there are Christians in Muslim prisons and some in communist prisons for the Lord's sake. Their character is not weakening in prison because of those limitations. Their character is being strengthened in prison because they exercise their will for God and against their own flesh under those limitations. 
That's building stronger believers. The church has never been as strong as when it is persecuted. That ought to be a lesson for us. And the church has never been as weak as when it has been just tolerated and, and uh, accepted. Worldliness not only destroys courage by destroying self-control, it destroys courage for Christ by scorning endurance. The world encourages people to abort their babies and their marriages. It encourages us to dump our jobs or our church if we don't like something. Drop out of school if it doesn't suit you. Consequently, worldly people never develop any endurance. Packer makes some insightful parenting applications to this matter of self-control and endurance. He says, if there are never any difficult situations that demand self-denial and discipline, if there are never any sustained pressures to cope with, if there are never any long-term strategies where the child must stick with an educational process, even like music lessons, or an apprenticeship, or the practice of a skill for many years in order to advance, there will never be any maturity of character. The children who, of course, want life to be easy and full of fun, as children always do, will remain spoiled all their lives because everything has been made too easy for them. Worldliness destroys courage, that center column, because it scorns endurance. You don't have to stay with anything. You don't like your job, find another one. You don't like your boss, find another boss. Don't like your spouse, find another spouse. Don't like your roommate, find another roommate. People are not taught to work through their problems and learn how to endure. Worldliness, lastly, destroys courage for Christ by scorning godliness, the third virtue in that column. The world promotes conformity to its ways and ridicules nonconformists. And the world promotes its values and ideals through advertising. I hope if you, when you ever do, if you have to, watch a television commercial, I hope you sit there and think about what is being said in that commercial. What is being promised and on what basis? And what are they using to advertise it? The world does a great job of peddling worldliness. Live life without God. You can have it all. Just use this, put on this cream, buy this, drive this car. You can have it all, and you don't even need God. It promotes its values and ideals through advertising, through entertainment, through the secular news media, through public education, through unprincipled court rulings like Roe v. Wade, and through unprincipled legislation. But the godly man is more aware of what pleases God instead of what pleases the world. Folks, what we call the fear of man is usually just a lack of courage. So, you know, I really have a problem with the fear of man. If you have a problem with the fear of man, what we need to say is, you know, basically, I'm a coward. And I don't have any courage. Well, how do you get it? Some self-discipline some endurance, some godliness based on commitment to Jesus Christ who is at the center of your life and you will have courage. And a man who fears God in that way, who's aware that God is here 
and God is powerful, and God is at work, and that makes him depart from evil, Proverbs says. But it also gives him courage, because God is here. A godly man has courage. Courage is skilled at saying no to the internal desires and lusts. He has self-control. Courage is skilled at saying no to external pressures. A person with courage has endurance. Courage is skilled at saying no to evil because it's skilled at saying yes to God. It has godliness. And folks, the consequences of societies and groups of people and families, the consequences of social groups without courage are staggering. People without courage run from conflicts and they run from challenges. They don't face hard tasks and they won't try new endeavors unless they're assured of success. They won't speak up. They won't give honest feedback. They avoid uncommunicative people. They tolerate backbiting and gossip and revenge and other relational evils. And if they do speak up, the only time a coward will speak up is when some action has so upset his personal pursuit of pleasure that he gets upset with the people who are messing with his world. That's not courage. That's just a temper tantrum. And tragically, any group without courageous individuals is on a path of self-destruction. Did you know that if this church doesn't have courageous individuals in it, it is on a path of self-destruction? If your family does not have courageous individuals in it, it is on a path of self-destruction. If your Christian school does not have courageous individuals leading it, it is on a path of self-destruction. If this society does not have courageous individuals in it in leadership, it is on a path of self-destruction. And we can see that all around us. Folks, social groups must have courageous people or the self-centeredness of the individuals will destroy the group. Well, how do we cultivate courage for Christ? It must become second nature to the godly man. He doesn't have to think through whether he will do right, although he may have to think about what he will do, but he's not debating whether he's going to or not. Gus Lee said this, Character derives from a Greek word that means engrave, impressed deeply and permanently. It is possessed by a person with fixed habits of moral firmness and excellence. And notice this, who acts spontaneously for what is right. That's the cultivated habit of his heart. He knows he's going to do right. He may not know what that right is at the moment, but he's going to do it when he finds out. He's committed to doing right. This past summer, my wife and I and some other members of our church here toured Israel. We had a very wonderful guide, Aryeh Bardavid, 60-year-old believing Jew, scripture-saturated Jew, courageous warrior in his own right, He had fought in every major battle of Israel since he was a teenager. He took us to the eastern edge of the Golan Heights, and we visited a kibbutz there where we saw a documentary of a tank battle that took place during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And the coordinates of the place where it took place were OZ-77. 
And in that battle, one battalion of Israeli tanks, and old Israeli tanks, by the way, fought against 22 Syrian tank battalions who were equipped with night, night vision and all of the latest things. And it was a moving and sobering documentary. Live footage that was taken during that tank battle. Many lives were lost. In the providence of God. And that's exactly what it took. Although the Israelis who talk about it don't know what happened. In the providence of God they won. The Israelis won. But what impressed me most about that was something that Aryeh said after the film. He was constantly lecturing us and preaching at us. And it was a wonderful thing. He said, wars like this are won by many split-second decisions that make a difference. And he cautioned, if you wait too long to make the decision in war, you lose the opportunity to make a difference. I jotted down those uh, words and thought about them much in the next few days. Leadership is about making many split-second decisions that make a difference. Decisions to encourage somebody on the spot, to rebuke somebody on the spot, to stand against evil on the spot, to initiate right actions on the spot, to handle problems on the spot. And leadership takes the courage to handle things on the spot. A courageous person does not miss these opportunities because he has developed the habit of doing right now. It only takes a split-second decision to say, I'm going to turn away from that billboard. I'm going to turn away from that magazine on the rack in the, in, 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 in the, the grocery store. I'm going to turn away from that ad on television because I do not want to be desensitized to moral purity. And a man who will practice those split-second decisions time after time after time after time will know exactly what to do when some woman approaches him at work. He's in the practice of doing the right thing. Or when an unsolicited porn ad comes up on his computer screen, he will know what to do with it like that. He's practiced many split-second decisions of doing the right thing. The godly man practices on the smaller battlefields and targets so that he will not lose the larger battles. Please understand, I'm not reducing godliness to merely habitual practices. I have many times in these definitions, if you have seen them on the chart... I've prefaced those definitions by phrases such as God-taught, God-empowered, God-sustained, God-fearing, God-engendered, and God-imitating. I want you to see that God is not only the end of all of these things, He's the source of our help in doing all of these things. But this committed, courageous Christianity must become our lifestyle. So, well, that's kind of hard. Well, it is. Let me, let me close with this illustration. It is like learning a foreign language. You take French for a couple of years in high school and it's very mechanical as you look up what that word means and where it's fitting in the grammar of the sentence and try to make this translation and it takes a long time and it's very awkward to make all of that translation. And then you take a couple more years of it in college and you get a little bit better at it and you can say some, some phrases in French and maybe do a little conversational speech and then maybe God puts you on a mission field in a summer team after uh, the first or second year of college and there you're on a French field and you're speaking French and it's becoming a lot more familiar with you and it's not so, it's becoming more natural. And then maybe God calls you to spend your life there and after several years in France or Quebec or where you are, wherever you are, you actually think and dream in French. 
Did you know that you can spend so much time meditating on God's Word, thinking through the situations that come up, and it may be pretty mechanical when you first start. Well, I can't do that. God says this. And I'm not sure I should do that. Let's see what, look up what He says over here. And it's pretty mechanical. But did you know that after years of that, you think and dream your Bible? Godliness has become the natural way you live. Christ-like wholeness, integrity, requires the courage to do the right thing no matter what. Courage forms the guts, the virility, the backbone of Christian character. It is the strength of the pillar of these core values. I don't know about you, but that was he. If he's not careful, he'll preach. Good night. I like what he said. Courage is doing right now. I like that. It's uh, and I love the last illustration of of being so trained or so practiced in the small arena that when you get to the battlefields, it's easy. It's you don't have to think about it. Um, police officers and military personnel who practice and they drill and they drill and they drill and they drill and they drill. And they drill. Why why do police officers do so much training? Why do they just train and train and train? Because when they get to a call, their training kicks in, and they don't have to think about what they're going to do physically. Uh, it's automatically ingrained in them. My nephew was here over the weekend who's a police officer in uh, one of the cities just outside of Austin. And uh, he was the one that we prayed for last year was shot in the head. And uh, he was in, he answered a call for domestic violence. And uh, Brother Scott, as you know, those are going to be some of the worst ones because they're so passion-driven and, and anger-driven. Uh, and it went south. The individual started firing on officers. And, and uh, uh, in his exit interview, I was talking about Scott this uh, a couple of days ago. In his exit interview, in his debriefing, they said to him, Chris, at any time when you were engaged by the suspect, did you return fire? while you were hit or before you were hit. And he said, no. He said he never returned fire. He was just hit on the right on the top of his head. He showed us the scar, actually, where it just ricocheted right off the top of his head. He said if he was a quarter inch taller, he'd be a dead man. And uh, he said, no, I never did. They watched the video, and he fired his weapon a lot. And they used that to train the officers to show you how important it is that you train. Because when it when everything fell out, training kicked in, and he did everything that he was supposed to do without thinking about it. He just did it because it was natural to do. Man, what a great illustration of what godliness should be to the Christian. Amen? I said this many times over 17 years, or almost 17 years. What we practice at home in Christianity, God is so gracious to us to give us families that we can practice our Christianity at home. So that when we leave our home or when we leave our churches, it's second nature. That's why it's so important for a Christian family to be in a Bible-preaching church because then you get it even more. You're here with the family of God. You're hearing the preaching of the Word of God more than once a week. Then you go home and you're living it out there. And when we're outside of those areas, it's second nature. Why? Because we're practicing it in here. We don't allow ourselves the privilege of liberty in here. We keep ourselves restrained. We do it at home. So that when we're out in the world, the devil has no tar- no no ability to to snare us. Amen. That's the idea: is that we have an enemy, 
and uh, and yet greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. What a tremendous lesson. Anybody have anything they want to add to that? God spoke to you specifically in some specific way? Anybody want to give an add to that? Yeah. 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 Keeping that mental sign before you all the time. I am not my own. I bought with a price. Somebody else? Real quick. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Being courageous is more than just being a good dude or a good girl, right? It, it, that's just being good. Uh, but being courageous is doing that which is right for yourself and correcting that which is wrong in others. And that's the big deal. That's the biggest problem is that we've learned to stop telling the truth in love. And uh, and we've so hurt our churches by that. Anybody else? Real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? All right. Good study. Let's uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will dismiss. Brother King, you want to close us in a word of, a word of prayer? Thank you, sir.